when sport has problems, it likes to tell us that it's the small guy who transgresses. Yeah. That's what the governing bodies want the narrative to be. If there's a cheat, it's somebody small, somebody who's ranked 248 in the world, not second in the world. Yes. And my argument is, well, journalists exist to put that kind of stuff to the test. Welcome to episode 96 of Control the Controllables. We want to stay true to what we've said here at the podcast. We want to bring you sport from all the different lenses. And it's naive of us to think that all of the lenses are positive lenses, that people aren't out there pushing the boundaries, doing what they can to try and win the biggest prizes in sport. So who better to bring than David Walsh, the Sunday Times journalist, famously known for taking down arguably the biggest scandal in sport, Lance Armstrong. He doesn't hold back. He tells his story in a very candid way and he's able to link it to other sports, all of the lessons that there are to learn and what comes through very, very true, speaking to David, is he wants the truth and he's never going to stop until he gets the truth and it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast I'm going to pass you over to David Walsh. So, David Walsh, uh, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thank you for joining me. You're welcome. And a real treat to have you today, David. Um, we've already introduced you into the podcast, so we're going to get straight to it. We ask all of our guests around, around the passion that starts for sport. You know, so if you go back, not too many years, I hope, but how many years it is to where that passion started for you? I'm, I'm 65 years of age now. And if I go back to the start of where my passion for sport and writing about sport began, it's going to sound completely incongruous to people. And a lot of people will not believe it, but it's the truth. So why would I, why I'm not going to, I'm not going to start kind of making stuff up here. This for me goes back almost 60 years. And the reason I know it goes back 60 years is because one of my earliest memories is of watching a horse called Nicholas Silver win the Grand National. And the horse was, he was a, a grey horse. And I remember he won by quite a distance, maybe 10 lengths. And I remember watching it on TV and being astonished that at the end of a four and a half mile race, this horse could, could be running so fast. And it was a memory that I brought with me into teenage years, into early manhood years, into adult years. It's never dimmed. Right. And about two years ago, I went back to find out actually what year did Nicholas Silver win the Grand National? And I was astonished because I presumed I must have been about 10 or 12 when this happened. Nicholas Silver won the Grand National. I'm now going to, I get confused. It's either 1959 or 1960. I was either four or five years of age. Wow. And I'm watching this on TV and I think it's the most amazing thing and it stays with me forever. So why did I like watching, you know, a horse race at that age? Nobody in my family was interested in racing. It wasn't like we had horses or were from a horsey background. That wasn't the case. And, and really when it came to, um, basically when it came to sports, I was drawn 
I was drawn to watching it. I loved watching it. I, as soon as I could go and follow my local football team, I did. I was from a part of Ireland that was interested in, in hurling because we were Kilkenny. I watched hurling games. I watched soccer games and followed my local team, played sport. And the other thing I liked was I liked English in school. So even as a kid, when the teacher said to us at seven or eight years of age, you know, to try and write a little story. That to me was the, was the assignment I loved. I loved to sit down and write a story. And I was always trying to bend whatever I was asked to do around sport. So I would, I, I would write about sport. And the greatest compliment I got, it was actually the same teacher. I had an English teacher. And the first day he joined, he joined our class, you know, he, he took us over in the middle of a year. And I was like 15 years of age at this time. And he got us to do an essay and we all wrote. And he said, as he was tossing his, my copy book to me, like he threw it like a Frisbee. And he said, David, no, he didn't. He said, Walsh. He said, when did you start English? Yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> now, the other thing he said to me later on, I wrote a, uh, an essay about horse racing. And he said to me, he said, I can see you grew up reading Dick Francis. And I had grown up reading Dick Francis. Yeah. And to me, that was like, wow, I've written something that <laughs> reminds this guy of Dick Francis. So uh, yeah. hallelujah. Um, but basically from the age of six, I wanted to be a sports reporter because I read about, I read about, I mean, my, our local newspaper was the Irish Independent. I went to a shop across from where I lived. I sat on a wall. Jimmy Fitzgerald, who delivered the milk, also delivered the newspapers to our local shop. And, and the newspapers came wrapped in like a tubular form. And if you put your hand down the middle, you could draw out a newspaper. And I, I couldn't wait for the shop to open. And on a summer's morning, I would sit on a wall by the shop reading the sports pages like, mm. like some guy who'd been in the desert and suddenly had found water. That's, that, that was how I was. And I had a, an opinion, even as a young guy, I had an opinion about every journalist who wrote about sport in the Irish Independent. Many of them I disliked, some I liked, some I thought were biased, some I thought wrote well, some I thought wrote badly. And when people come to me and they say, I'd love to be a sports writer, I say to them, tell me what you think about today's sports writers. Who, who do you read? Who do you like? And if they stumble on that, I politely tell them, I don't think they really want to be a sports writer. Uh, it's my little litmus test. Yeah, if you're the kind of person who really wants to be a sports writer, you're very conscious when you're reading about sport that this is the opinion of just another human being. And he may be biased, he may be talented, he may be lacking in talent, but you should have an opinion on him if you're the type who wants to end up a sports writer. So basically from the age of six, I would say to my mom, when I grow up, I want to be a sports reporter. And she came from a family of teachers and she wanted me to be a teacher. But she she hadn't a hope in hell, you know, because <laughs> I really was determined to become a sports reporter. So that's a very long winded answer to a very straightforward question. It's an amazing answer, David. I tell you what, if this is what I've got in for me, I'm looking forward to this next hour or so, because that was that was a brilliant answer. And, and the thing that jumps to me, actually, like as you're saying that, not once did you mention about playing sport. 
were were you as yeah. passionate about playing it, or was it about watching it and writing about it? And all I, of those I played a lot of sport, but if I've, I've got four brothers, and uh, three of them are still with us, thank God. And if my three brothers were kind of you know sitting alongside of me here now, they'd say. <laughs> I'll tell you why he hasn't mentioned about <laughs> playing sport because of all of us, he was the one with the least talent. Okay. And, and it's true. I was, I, I, you know, some of my brothers were pretty decent. My younger brother, Jerry was very talented. He played inter-county Gaelic football for Kilkenny. He played on the best soccer football junior team in Ireland and played rugby for the local club and played three matches for Munster. Okay. So he was, he was capped by Munster. He was a very good rugby. I, I played rugby. I played soccer. I played Gaelic football. I played tennis. I played any game you could. Uh, I I played, and I and and now I'm I'm 65 years of age and still a very keen golfer, and I I, I still run. Um, so I've always been active, but but if it was, if you had to have talent to be allowed to be involved in sport, I wouldn't have been allowed to do any. <laughs> <laughs> it's very smart though it's good i mean we've all we've all got to take what we're good at and and try and run with it you know so yeah it, it's... or if you're not good at something you've got to find the next best yeah. thing you know do you know what they say uh you know i would say those who can play sport those who can't try to write about it <laughs> <laughs> very good uh, absolutely and, and, the, and the other thing david that i guess I've followed your work you know, I, over the years. My dad certainly has. You know, my dad's very excited that, you, that you're on the podcast. And it, what's, one thing that's very clear, and it's really interesting hearing you talking about other sports writers and how you really paid attention to them from a young age, because I guess your values come through very clearly, you know, and the way that you've, your pursuit of, of getting the truth out you're you know not just looking for a story but actually really truly trying to get get the truth out there for the world to see where where did those values grow were those those from the family is that something you picked up from other sports writers and not really and and i i'd love to say it was my mom and dad but unfortunately my mom and dad both died when they were in their 50s so you know my mum basically thought I should be thinking of doing something better than sports journalism. And, and, and I should say, because I loved her dearly, that it's a tremendous uh, sadness for me that she was never around to see that I actually, I, I did okay in sports journalism. My dad was like my brothers. He was very talented at sport. He was very good. And I would have been regarded as the guy who didn't have that much talent. The values that I would, uh, I, I'm not any more virtuous than anybody else, but I suppose one of the things about sport, if I could put this, is that when I meet people who are fans of sport, yeah. they will always ask me about the top guys. You know, did you ever interview Tiger Woods? Yeah. You know, have you ever done a, have you ever, have you ever met Djokovic? Yeah. And I kind of say, no, actually, I've never done a one-on-one -on -one with Tiger Woods or with Novak Djokovic. And it doesn't bother me. Yeah. I mean, what are they? They're just people who are extraordinarily talented at what they do. And of course, they apply a lot of intelligence to how they do it. And that's commendable. But from my point of view, they're just people who happen to be good at their jobs. Like I, I don't hold up a, an accountant for being a brilliant accountant. Yeah. And I don't hold up a brilliant delivery man for never missing a deadline. So I've never been in awe of sportsmen in that way. Yeah. But, but if I meet somebody who I think is a, is a pretty, pretty good guy, you know, considerate, interesting, 
well then I'll be impressed by that. I'm not yeah. going to be impressed by the fact that you know he shot he shot 64 or 65 in the weekend to win a golf tournament. Yeah. You know that's what that's what he's trying to do and that's what he's good at. But if in victory he espouses values that you and I would think are commendable, yeah. well then he's kind of maybe worthy of our of our ad, admiration. Yeah. It's not the fact that he can you know do his job brilliantly. Yep. That that in my view is deserving of adulation. I suppose in relation to what I'm coming at here is what I'm saying at is that just because you're very successful isn't a guarantee that you've done everything correctly. Yep. You may have, you may not. Yep. And you deserve to be scrutinized in the way that everybody is scrutinized. Yep. When sport has problems, it likes to tell us that it's the small guy who transgresses, who transgresses. Yep. That's what the governing bodies want the narrative to be. If there's a cheat, it's somebody small, somebody who's ranked 248 in the world, not second in the world. Yes. And my argument is, well, journalists exist to put that kind of stuff to the test. Yep. And in, in relation to your question, where did it come from? I don't really know. Uh, I, I'd love to give my parents the, the credit in my family, but... I, I don't think they would ever say they did that. You know what I mean? It wasn't like they were always saying to me, you have to be honest. I mean, I got in trouble if I told lies, but then who didn't? Yep. And, and I certainly did tell lies along the way, like everybody, you know, every kid to get out of trouble thinks, thinks lying is the best way. But I remember when I got my first job in journalism, I worked for a newspaper called the Leitrim Observer. Leitrim is the smallest county in Ireland. Um, I spent two years there. There were maybe certainly two of the most enjoyable years of my life. I totally loved it. I got the job of my dreams working in journalism. Now, I wasn't just doing sport. I was doing everything else there. I was like 23, 24 years of age. And in about the first two months, I covered a Gaelic football game between two clubs in Leitrim. There was an old fullback playing for the bigger team, Balnamore. And he was being given the runaround by a teenager playing for the other team. And I went, I went from one side of the pitch. It was only about 500 people at the game. And I'm the reporter from the local Leitrim Observer. And I'm walking around at halftime. I decide the sun is really glary. So if I go to the far side, I can watch the game without having to deal with a, with a low-lying winter sun. And the second half begins as I'm walking around. And as I'm going behind the goal, the young full forward, a teenager, scores another point on the old fullback. And he's given him, the young guy is giving the old guy a run around. Now, what I see is that when they're waiting for the ball to be returned from behind the goal, the old fullback just uses his right elbow and goes whack onto the cheek of the young guy. Mm. Pretty violent use of his elbow. There's not a ball in sight. Yeah. The young guy goes down. Nobody has seen it, it seems, in the entire ground except the reporter from the Leitrim Observer who's only just in the job and um, the young guy gets up and he plays on he's not quite as effective for the last 20 minutes but his team I think still wins so it's okay and I was appalled by what I saw right absolutely indignant and um, the old guy was principal of the local national school in his in his town right, okay. and he was a much respected man much loved genuinely loved and it, it was probably hard for him being given the runaround by a, 
by somebody who was virtually half his age. Yep. And, and he did what he felt he needed to do to stop it going on. And, I, and I'm the young reporter just in a job. What do I do? Because I can't prove that this happened. There is no TV cameras. There is no video. It's only what I saw. It's going to be denied. And uh, I said I would go down to where this teenager worked. He worked in, in, a, in a hardware store in the town of Mohill in Leitrim. And I go to the hardware store and I walk up to him and he's serving and people disappear. So there's just the two of us. And he's got a, a black and blue mark under his eye. And I say, Shane, his name was Shane Heslan. I said, Shane, I know how that happened. And he said, how, uh, what do you mean you know? I said, I was at the game. I was covering it for the Observer. My name is David Walsh. I'm a sports reporter. And uh, I said, I saw Brendan Burns giving you that elbow. He said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm not saying anything. And I said, well, that's how it happened, isn't it? He said, I'm not saying. He didn't want to be pointing a finger at anybody. Yep. Now, I went back and I discussed it with my colleague, Michael Oates in the Observer. What do I do? And Michael said, your call. And I wrote the report and I described it exactly as it happened. I said, Brendan Burns. Now, I didn't say he's the principal of the local school, but everybody, all our readers know that, especially in his area. I give Brendan Burns a lot of credit because he didn't sue me. If he had sued me, I would have lost and the newspaper would have right, lost. Okay. Because I couldn't have proven that that's what had happened. Yeah. Um, but in terms of how I wanted to do the job going forward, that was a good indication of what my attitude was going to be. Okay. I'm not here to be a cheer, cheerleader. Yep. I mean, uh, I knew a policeman, a Garda in, in Leitrim. I got to know a man called Arthur Boyle. And he was a, he was a guard, a policeman in the town of Drum Shanbo, in, uh, no, a town of Drum Kieran in Leitrim. And Arthur used to say, David, you and I, we do jobs that have one thing in common. And I'd say, what's that, Arthur? And he said, neither of us are paid to be popular. Yeah. And, uh, and that's always been a mantra of mine going forward. Yeah. You know, I get paid. And part of the deal is that I needn't be popular. I'm not being paid to be popular. It's not yeah. like, you know, um, everybody has to agree with what I'm doing. Yeah. And uh, so I've never, I've never worried too much about being unpopular. I mean, nobody wants to be pilloried on social media or have your readers disagree with everything you write. But at the same time, you wouldn't want to be governed by the need to be popular because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't say anything that was, that, you know, there's many times then you'd steer away from the truth. Yeah. So that was the kind of young journalist I was. And, and I would have stayed in Leitrim all my life if it hadn't been for the fact that I just wanted to work in sport. Yes. I mean, in, in Leitrim, I ended up being the, the editor of the Leitrim Observer for the year before I left, which was quite a big job for a local newspaper, but I would have been a hopeless editor and I would have been uh, promoted far too soon in my career for that. So yeah. I basically took a job in a national newspaper after two years in Leitrim and, and went to a string of different national newspapers in Ireland until getting a job with the Sunday Times in Dublin in 1996. And then having spent two years in the Sunday Times, my boss at the Sunday Times, Alex Butler, invited me to move my family to England. I said to my wife, I said, how would you feel about uprooting and living in England? And she said, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Let's, let's give it a go. 
and we've been living in England now for the last 22 years and, okay. and that's where you find me now yeah David, it, it, it's so clear to, to see, you know, what you've described. There's such a good story around your values and what, what is important to you and, and how you got into that. But it's one thing to stick to those and stick to that way of doing it in a small town in Dublin, <laughs> taking on the taking on the head teacher. It's it's another thing to take on arguably the biggest sporting star in the world at that time. On, on something as serious as doping, you know, and 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 I guess the, the Lance Armstrong story, you know, we, we all know it. We we all know that you were the little troll that, that chased him. Yeah. Uh, you know, how how were you able to to stay true to what you believed through what I would imagine was a very difficult time for you? Yeah. Um no, I if I, I without wishing to be pernickety about this, um you, you say I was the little troll. That's not strictly true because what Lance called me was I was the little fucking troll. <laughs> and he was insistent upon, he was always insistent upon my getting the full title. Yeah. And, um, but it actually, I, everybody has said to me over the years, you know, it must have been such a difficult time. I never remembered it like that. Maybe, it, maybe there were times when it was, but I, it's just not how I remember it. I remember it as being the time of my life. I remember it as feeling more alive during those years than I've ever felt since. And in a way, there's part of me that's always trying to to recreate how I felt then in my later journalistic life now. You know, if somebody comes along to me now and says, and says, David, I'm going to tell you something that could be one of the greatest scandals that you've ever heard in sport, I immediately get excited. And I say, okay you know, how can we get this into print? And uh, and when you're involved in a story like that, that's when you feel, yes, this is what it's about. I don't know who said it. Um, somebody said, some original publisher, I think, said something to the tune of the stuff that appears in newspapers that people don't want to see in print, that's journalism. Yeah. Everything else is advertising. Mm. You know, so it's like there was an old guy, um, uh, Willie Collins was his name. He worked at a newspaper called the Sunday Press in Dublin when I was there. And and I worked with a great guy who since died, um, Sean Flynn, brilliant, brilliant journalist. And Sean and I were the two young reporters there. And and, uh, we were always trying to break stories and try to get at the truth in difficult situations. And uh, Sean did a lot of work in crime and was, as I say, a great journalist. Well, I did stories about corruption in the Irish Olympic movement, and I got legal writs from a guy called Pat Hickey, who was on his way then to being a member of the IOC. So he, he was going to sue us, and he, he, he issued in all about 26 writs against me and the yeah. Sunday Press. And um, I, I brought one of these writs to Willie Collins, who was the old journalist, who was the, the sub-editor who'd seen it all. And I said, this is the first time I've got a legal writ, Willie. It scares the hell out of me. Yeah. You know, what's going to happen here? And he picked up the writ and he had a little read of it. And he said, David, he tossed it as he tossed it back onto my kind of desk. He said, these are the Oscars of our profession. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's true. It is yeah, actually true good, that, yeah. that, that when somebody sues you, it often means 
that's when you're getting close to a truth that they yes. don't want to see in print. Yeah. And how sure were you, Dave? I guess for you to for you to keep going and the like I say, if I'm right, the the Times got sued and the, and it cost the Times yeah. a lot of money for for a time. So so I, I would imagine the weight's getting heavier as those things happen. Even if you're able to reframe it in the way that you, you so eloquently are reframing it, how sure were you that that was the truth? And was it just about getting it out? No, guarantee. I, I knew, like, guaranteed it was the truth. Okay. And I knew it from basically the first or second week of Lance's first Tour de France. Right. It okay. really was perfectly obvious. Um, if I could take you back to the 99 Tour, which was the first that Lance won, and you'd been traveling with me in the car, and I'd been saying, look, these are the factories that, that, lead us to believe he's doping yep. and you wrote them all down and then these are the factors that will that would be used as a counter argument yep. and you put on one side reasons to believe this man is a cheat on the other side reasons to believe he's clean well there's no contest and you would have said david why is everybody not seeing this yep. this is perfectly obvious and it really was i mean there was no test for EPO in 1999. In 1998, basically the, the, the French government, as in the police, found EPO everywhere they looked at the Tour de France. So yep. we know everybody in 1998 virtually, or most of the teams yep. were using EPO. The only reason they would stop doing that in 99 was moral and ethical reasons. Yep. And there was no reason why they should all get moral or ethical because there was no danger of being caught there was no test for epo yes. they yep. couldn't get caught so you had to believe that they suddenly got a sense of righteousness now there was no evidence that that had happened and we were told before the 99 tour that the speeds would go down because people would be using less drugs 99 tour was the fastest in history you know so and then there was armstrong's kind of reaction to, to legitimate questions about, you know, whether doping could still be a part of the sport. He was aggressive. He was in denial. He, he was arrogant. He wouldn't, he wouldn't consider the possibility that some people might be doping. He would say to you, look, you're a journalist. Your job is to report on how brilliant all of the top guys are in this race. That's your job. No, your job is not to be asking questions. Your job is not to be skeptical. So, mm -hmm. My argument was, Lance, I'm definitely not buying this bullshit that yeah, like yeah. you're trying to kind of um, feed us. And then there was a young French writer in the race, Christophe Basson, who looked like perfectly credible young guy. Well, he was the same age as Lance, same amount of talent as Lance, who said, I can achieve nothing in this race because I'm not doping. Yeah. And I guarantee you, to get in the top 20 in this race, you've got to be doping. So then you say, well, who do you believe? Do you believe Armstrong or do you believe Basson? And again, any reasonable person would have said, Basson has no reason to lie. Armstrong has got lots of reason to lie. And But what so about the other 19, David? So I guess in, in terms of what you said about pretty much the whole field was doing it in 98, and I would imagine before, and I would imagine after, yes. you know? So... so why was Armstrong the one that you that you you went after when there was so many others that were doing it as well? Yeah. Now you're right about ninety eight, 
there was like, I'd say the big majority of writers in 98 were doping. In 99, it was different because there had been a reaction to 98 and the French writers had been subjected to kind of um, quarterly testing. Okay. So they were doing, you know, um, biological passport stuff long before the biological passport was introduced. And, and the French had had such a, the country had reacted so badly to the scandal of 98 that a lot of the French teams decided the sport now has to go clean. And a lot of French writers in that race were clean. So although you're right about 98, the, the situation had changed in 99. As to the question of why focus on Armstrong? Well, in my eyes, he was a unique case because he had come back from life-threatening cancer. Yep. He comes to a sport that's had this unbelievable um, kind of crisis the year before with all the doping, you know, whatever, five Spanish teams leave the race, the late Marco Pantani wins the race. Everybody knows he's a doper. And it's, a, it's an appalling kind of scene for cycling. So Lance comes back into it, having had his near-death brush with cancer. He's got a big decision to make as to how he's going to do it. He decides to go down a doping route. Um, I'm asking questions. I mean, that final Sunday that he won, at the, at the, when he won the 99 race, the headline on the report I wrote for the Sunday Times that first year was flawed fairy tale. Mm. And I believed it was a flawed fairy tale because remember, all the coverage of that race was Lance Armstrong centered. He was the guy who'd had life threatening cancer. Yeah. He's the guy who'd come back. So not only is this regarded as one of the greatest comebacks we've ever seen. And remember, he was totally dominant in that 99 race. Mm. He didn't just win it. He absolutely smashed it, ground his rivals to dust. So he was the narrative, whether I liked it or not. And yes. the big question was, do you believe in this fairy tale? And I'm saying, no, it's a flawed fairy tale because this guy is still doping. And um, he keeps winning and he keeps earning tens and tens of millions. He becomes an icon, a global icon, and particularly an icon to the cancer community. So if he's involved in a fraud, it's the greatest fraud we've ever seen. And to me, it was entirely logical to focus on Lance yep. because he was the symbol of the guy who'd come back from near death to win the toughest athletic event maybe in the whole of sport. And not to win it once, but twice, right up to seven times. Yep. And, uh, and the longer his success went on, the more he dominated the narrative. Yeah. And to me, you know, of course, we could have looked at other people. I could have looked at other people. But it became about Lance. Yes. And, and, and remember, he was the one, you know, aggressively denying, suing, you know, as he, he sued me, he sued the Sunday Times. You know, he was the one perjuring himself. He was the one, you know, getting the huge. I mean, after he retired, he had a deal with Nike that guaranteed him. $10 million a year, you know, after he retired. So, you know, there's no cyclist in the history oh. of cycling who I would have said would have ever had, um, even when they were competing, like a sponsorship that was worth more than $1 million a year, $1 million yeah. a year. And this guy is getting $10 million just from one sponsor after he's finished. So I, I never had any 
qualms about the focus on Lance because uh, to me, he became a symbol for what the sport was at that time. Yeah. And how, how accurate. So I, I, I watched it the other night, actually, the program, the, the film about this in which obviously your, your role is, is very much, you know, on, on display. How accurate is that film in terms of showcasing the events? Is that, is that a film you're happy that's gone out there? Yes, yes, I am happy. And, um, and I was involved as a kind of a consultant with it all the way. And I kind of wanted to, them to be, you know, if I wanted the film to have a journalistic integrity, and I believe it has, I believe it tells the story accurately. I think, I think accu- accuracy is, is the, the greatest quality of that film. Now, remember, when you decide to tell the story, we know from different members of the US postal team, for example, let me give you an example here. We know that in the middle of the Tour de France, they actually did blood transfusions on the team bus yeah. coming from a stage end. They stopped the bus, pulled into a lay-by, mounted up the blood bags and got a transfusion while on the bus. We know that happened from the riders themselves. We don't actually know the conversations that took place while it was happening. So what you get then is the screenwriter deciding, well, you know, we don't know what they said, but in order to tell the story, we need to write in dialogue here. Yes. So so if if Lance or any of the guys had were to say, well, we never said that on the bus, I would say that's totally true. You probably didn't say it, but you did you did dope on the on the team bus that that's fact and that's what's important here so so yes it tells the story i believe with real integrity but you have to allow filmmakers license yeah to fill in blanks in order to keep the narrative together and and all and, and the blanks really aren't the story they're the bit that enable you to tell the story yeah very good and i would for the, for the listeners i would i would highly recommend it you know i really would i think it's uh, i'm pleased you said that because i enjoyed it it, it felt authentic it, it, it felt oh. like it was accurate it, it felt real you know and all of those things it, i think it would have killed me if i'd come on here and you'd said no it's all a lot of bullshit it actually they oh, so no, that's no, lovely no, to hear no. that's lovely to hear no i and i mean one last thing i'd say if i were doing it again dan the advice that i i, I gave the people at working title who were wonderful to work with was look we've got to tell this with real integrity we've got to yeah uh, i think films work better if they don't try and tell all the story yeah. that they just focus on maybe one aspect of the story and they put a microscope on that aspect and yeah. they probably exaggerate the importance of that aspect of the story, but it would create better drama. Yes. And, and it would give the film more depth, it, yeah. but it, but it wouldn't be as authentic. Yes. I think that, I think the program is very authentic, but I think it almost tried to do too much. Yeah. They tried to tell. I mean, I'm there sitting in conference rooms with the people at Working Title saying, you've got to get right into the Floyd Landis story because Floyd Landis was so important to yeah. the kind of climax of the story when yeah. he sent out his emails to all the various people in, in, in United States anti-doping and American cycling and the UCI. That stuff was crucial to the evolution of the story. Yeah. So they do that in the film. But watching the film, I could well understand 
a lot of viewers almost being overwhelmed by the amount of, of evidence they were getting, being overwhelmed by the kind of breadth of the narrative, yeah. but not being overwhelmed by the depth of the narrative. Yes. Uh, so, but to do to do that, you just would have needed maybe to make it a story about a journalist and a and a sports champion, yeah. and like zoom in on that and blank out everything else. And people would say legitimately afterwards, like they missed out loads of important elements of the story, but they might have created a better film. Right. And, I'm, and I, I did enjoy the film and I do think it's a good film, but if I were doing it again, I think I would, I would focus on one aspect. And the, and the one thing that, that hits me talking to you is a bit like the chase, the chase of that girl at school, you know, when you've been chasing her for a couple of years, you know, you, you eventually get that date and then actually you maybe don't have that, that buzz anymore. Um, not that I was a one to be able to chase girls for two years and get that, but I heard that that's what happens. Yes. And, and I guess the, the, almost the climax of, you know, you've gone on this chase. It's, it's, I would imagine, become an obsession. You know, you've talked about the buzz, that everything that it's brought to your life. And then he's guilty. You, you've won. He's, his hands are up. You've pushed him into a corner where he can't go anywhere. How was that feeling? Well, that feeling, the, the, the climax for me was, uh, it came about in an extraordinary place. Um, Lewis Pugh, the environmentalist who, who, who might help write uh, an autobiography years before in May, 2010, he invited me to go to the Himalayas on an expedition. He was going to swim in a glacial lake up close to base camp in the, in the, in the Himalayas. So I thought this would be an amazing experience. And off I went. And for three and a half weeks, we trekked through the Himalayas. And uh, it was a, just a wonderful experience. What a beautiful place. And uh, we slept in like one man tents. And I'm at a place called Gorup Ship, six o'clock in the morning on this, May morning, 2010, the snow outside, the, where we are is snow. We're, we've got about a one hour walk to base camp, which, and that's as high as we're going. But I'll tell you, that's, I think it's about 22, 23,000 feet. So it, it's, it's pretty high up. And, uh, and I haven't had any altitude sickness. I'm feeling great. And I get a phone call that morning because you, you, would, get your, you would get mobile reception even in the Himalayas. And my boss said to me, Floyd Landis says, has done tell all emails to everybody. And for me, that was the moment that where I felt, yes, right. yes. And, and my boss said to me, you, you've got to write about it. And I said, I said, well, I, I, I totally have to. Now I brought my laptop with me in the Himalayas just in case something happened, yeah. but we've got a six hour walk to an, an internet cafe. Wow. Where I can, and they, and Lewis, organized for a Sherpa to take me down to the internet cafe. And I walked down that, it was like a six hour walk. And it was, it was like the happiest walk of my life because of yeah. where I was going. And I get to this place and the sign on the place said, uh, German patisserie and internet cafe. <laughs> and I went in there and I got a big German patisserie, a cappuccino, and I sat down and wrote for about again, another six hours. And uh, it was definitely, the high point for me. Now, another two years, two and a half years would pass before Lance actually was suspended. And there was lots of 
you know, like in a, in a great movie, you'll think you've reached the climax, yeah. but there's a twist in the story. And there were twists because the investigation into Lance that the, that the American Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, had launched into Lance, which looked like it was going to lead to really serious charges, just got dropped at the 11th hour. And it looked like Lance had got away again. Now, in my eyes, the Floyd Landis emails showed anybody who wanted to see what exactly was going on. And that was the pivotal moment in all of this. But luckily, from the point of view of those people who wanted the truth to come out, the United States Anti-Doping Agency picked up the baton from the Food and Drug Administration because all the cyclists had given huge interviews to the Food and Drug Administration, all admitting the doping. Some DA district attorney in California dropped the case and it looks like it's going to die. But Travis Tiger, the head of the United States States Anti-Doping Agency said, well, if I can get the cyclists to tell me what they told the Food and Drug Administration, I'll have a case against Armstrong. And it was really funny. Now, this might be boring for people, but I think it's a really interesting point. But what Travis Tiger did was he interviewed all the cyclists. And there was a, a member of the Department of Justice, like a detective, sitting in on the interview. And what, Travis Tiger wasn't entitled to the transcripts of all the interviews that the cyclists, the US postal cyclists, had done with the Food and Drug Administration people. But the Department of Justice detective was entitled to see those. So when the cyclists were being interviewed, the Department of Justice detective can't, they're being interviewed by the United States Anti-Doping Agency. They're being asked the same questions they were asked by the Food and Drug Administration. And here you've got a copper, a detective, sitting in on the interview with the transcript of their answers from the first interview. So what you've got are cyclists trying to remember exactly what they told the Food and Drug Administration so they won't be seen to be perjuring themselves with the United States Anti-Doping Agency. What that meant was that everything they told the FDA, they were now telling the United States Anti-Doping Agency. They couldn't just turn up to the second interview and lie because there was somebody sitting there with the transcript comparing the answers the answer previous time to your answer now so all the cyclists told the truth and basically that led to Lance being banned for life and uh, but but for me writing the story and I'm not saying it was a good story or a bad story but the story I wrote for the Sunday Times from the Himalayas that was that was the moment where I felt yes when I when then two and a half years later Lance came down I felt it a bit anticlimactic it's like everybody is saying do you feel vindicated yeah and I say, well, I'd love to say yes, but it's not like I was hoping or feeling there was any need for vindication. It was like so obvious that yeah, this yeah. guy was doping. Why does anybody need vindication? But as it happened, the rest of the world didn't see it like I saw it. They kind of saw a great champion. And, they, and even when Lance got banned for life, it didn't register. It was when Lance went on the Oprah Winfrey yeah. show and answered yes to all those yeah, yeah single word questions you know where did you did you use performance and single yes when they saw that it was like holy yeah. shit this guy fame, really but fame is so blinding it's unbelievable when 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 people have such fame 
it's amazing how it blinds people's views of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely true. That is that is true. And Lance's and Lance's fame wasn't just based on the fact that he was a brilliant cyclist, but he was also perceived to be this incredible human being who'd raised 500 500 million dollars for cancer. So from from in the eyes of the general public, this man was an absolute icon. So I have two questions, David, linked to that. First one, six hours down a mountain, six hours in an internet cafe, it's a hell of a way back up. How was that yeah. walk back up? Well, I, I, I stayed overnight in the, in the, there was a little kind of a, not a guest house, but like a, a little hostel uh, type little of place. hostel. Yes, yeah. that's exactly what it was. Stay there with the Sherpa. We went back up the next day. And again, like just really enjoyable. I think it took about six hours to walk down, about 12 hours to walk back up. Um, but the, but that environment is so beautiful. And I'd say to anybody, you know, if you, um, if, you, if, anybody, if you had the money or had the means to go trekking in the Himalayas, do. And the tour company who are bringing us, uh, the local guy from Nepal, he was saying, if you didn't go on the Everest Trail, which lots of people do, it's like designer, the designer trip. Um, he said, if you went in the mountain range, just oh, pointing over to our left, he said, it's much quieter there. And he said, it's far more beautiful. And I said, more beautiful than this. And he said, yes, absolutely. So it, it's something actually, you know, that I remember it, I think, yeah, that's something I'd like to do again. I'd like to go back to the Himalayas. Uh, don't ask me what's so wonderful about long walks in mountains, <laughs> but it was wonderful. <laughs> and, and then I guess moving forward, how, when, we, when we've talked about Lance Armstrong, and I promise we're going to move away from Lance in a second, but how do you feel now that he still continues to live a life of luxury and fame? I would say he's probably living a life of relative luxury. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't doubt that. Um, I would say, is he living a life of fame or fame laced with infamy? You know, it's, it's like, it's not easy when there's a, a, a cheating scandal in sport yeah. and you look at a website or you pick up a newspaper and they will have maybe a panel within the story that will say the five greatest instances of cheating in the world of sport. And the cheating you've done is judged by everybody to be the number one yeah. in that list. So uh, I think it's really difficult for Lance. I'm not saying I feel sorry for him, but what I am saying is that, you know, he may have held on to a lot of his money and he may be running a successful podcast now, but he's lost a lot. Yeah. I mean, occasionally you see um, a newspaper will send, send somebody out to interview him. And the interview reads as Lance is in parts contrite, in parts not really contrite, and you can take it or leave it. He, he offers an interesting perspective on what's happened in his life. And then you read the comments and you get this like pretty um, consistently negative reaction to him where people just say, why are you interviewing this cheat? This man no. deceived everybody. Why are you focusing any attention on him? Lance, go away, go away. And no. I, so I think that's not a brilliant place from his point of view. I mean, the most recent documentary that was done about him was uh, one of those, I think it was ES 2020 ESPN documentaries, Marina Zenovich. 
And, you know, she got his cooperation. Lance gave her lots of time. And she was asking, you know, pretty gentle questions. You know, she wasn't being argumentative or focusing that much attention on, it, on, on the cheating. But, of course, it comes up in different ways. And they spend a lot of time in each other's company. And Lance can't help but showing his true colours. So even though the documentary, Lance thinks it's going to reflect favourably on him, when people see it, they don't like the Lance they see in that documentary. Okay. Even though the documentary maker set out with the intention of, of making a documentary that would be relatively complimentary towards him. Yeah. You know, he, he couldn't help saying, I feel that I've been victimised here. Loads of other guys cheated, but I, I'm the guy who's carrying the can for everybody. And people say, yes, but the scale of your cheating, Lance, was on another level. And there was a moment in that documentary where Marina Zenovich, the documentary maker, says to him, you know, your son Luke is, is at college now, university. He, he's, he's got a, a American football scholarship. And if his coach tells him he needs to take drugs, what do you advise him? And Lance says, I would say to him, don't do it. You know, you're a you're at university, you don't need to do that. And then Lance couldn't help himself saying, but if this, but if he was in the NFL, we'd be having a different conversation. Oh. You know, and it's like, Lance. Come on. Have you learned nothing? Jesus. Yeah. Your experience. Yeah. So, so in a way, I use the expression with Lance, ultimately, that he can't help himself. And I mean that in the, in, not as a, cliched expression but but as a literal comment on the situation now he cannot help himself because he will say 19 things that are reasonable and plausible and would make you reconsider your view and then he'll say something yeah. and you think still the same guy yeah and what ha what would happen david if he reached out to you to apologize well he, he certainly won't. He certainly won't be reaching out to apologise. But, and I, I think he feels that I wronged him by focusing so much attention on him. I think that's his basic thing, and he would have seen the reaction to his fall because, in a way, I mean, it's a crude description of where we were. But when he was winning the Tour de France, it's like he and I were on a seesaw, yeah, and he was up here. And I was down right stuck on the bottom and I was kind of the bad guy. And then it began to turn and the kind of the seesaw started to get a little bit more level. I started to come up a little bit. He, people started wondering about him. And then he had his fall. And a consequence of he falling down was the other side of the seesaw goes up. Yeah. So he then is looking at and hearing people giving me credit for what I had done. Yes. And that would have been incredibly hard for him because he's a very competitive person. Um, I, I mean, I don't, and I know people will maybe wonder about this, but I don't bear him any animosity. It's like a long time ago, he took drugs. Lots of people took drugs. He was different and there were good reasons for looking at him as a particular case. But, but I would totally accept that what he did was done by many, many people. He gained more from it than anybody else, but then he suffered more than anybody else from being caught.
Yeah. So I suppose there's an innate balance there. Yeah. Um, but I don't I don't dislike him because I don't know him. Yeah. Um, he's he always seems like an interesting character. I listen to his podcast during the Tour de France, and I find him quite interesting. And so, if there was ever a chance of meeting him in a kind of a private way, you know, I I wouldn't have any like to be nothing would stop me doing that. But uh, you certainly wouldn't want it being used by Lance for kind of PR purposes, and he certainly wouldn't want me using him in the same way. Yeah. So, but I, if you said to me, do I think it will ever happen? I, I would, I would say probably not. I mean, you know, I live in the UK. He lives in the US. It's not like our paths are crossing very often. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, but as I say, the big thing for me is I never felt I had any personal animosity towards him. I just didn't like the idea of somebody gaining so much from cheating. Yeah, and fair and fair play to you, David, as well. You know, and if if I just shift gears a little bit into, I guess, the broader spectrum of sport, almost, I guess, using Lance as a bit of the example. You know, is he is he an outlier in terms of what you see from top class sportsmen? You know, or, or are there some traits that when 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 the stakes become so high? that these sportsmen, I'm not necessarily talking about cheating as such right now, but I'm more talking about the personality traits, the obsession, the, you know, what sort of traits do you see in top-class sportsmen and women? Well, I think they're, they are naturally going to be selfish. They're naturally going to be very driven, naturally very competitive. Lance would have been all of that stuff. And they often don't have a very good you know, overview on life because they get, they get into their own world and they try to eliminate distraction. Now, distraction is the kind of stuff that would end up giving you a a more balanced and nuanced view of life. And they're not interested in that. Um, Most, most um, top sports people are just very singular people, very driven, very good at what they do. And I think we can enjoy their performances, but we shouldn't confuse the high achieving or the high performing athlete with some model human being. And this idea that sportsmen should be role models. I just, uh, that for me is for the birds, you know? I mean, everybody will tell me I'm wrong. Of course they're, they're role models because kids look up to them. I would say, you know what? If you have kids and you're the mom or you're the dad, you be the role model. Yeah. You you be the person that your kid looks up to. And that way lies something that's sustainable and, and will be protective of your children. Don't expect some sportsmen to be, to be the role model. Of course, many of them would serve as good role models. And I mean, I, I'm really enjoying the way sportsmen are becoming more political now. You know, you... You compare um, LeBron James and yeah. his kind of statements about race and Black, Black Lives yeah. Matter in modern day America, as opposed to how Michael Jordan would have dealt with the same situation back in his day, although there weren't really similar situations, but there was times when Michael Jordan could have spoken out and he didn't feel confident enough to speak out or didn't feel it was in his interest to speak out. I think the world is changing in that respect and sports, sports people and sport and high-performing athletes are becoming more confident about 
about being able to say what they believe and and that's a good thing and I like that but I don't um I've never looked to sport for my heroes as such and and people always find that strange you work in sport and you don't regard these guys as heroes and I I think I, I'm happy to regard them as uh, brilliant at what they do I like watching them play sport and some of them are so bloody talented it's great to watch but but I don't go away thinking he or she is a model human being. But they are, I guess they are, whether we like it or not, in a position of influence. Yes. You know, so uh, I guess I, I completely get your point around whether whether as parents we choose for them to be to, to be role models. But I think the reality is they are role models to kids who are who are influenced by them. And I guess I don't know what the answer is, because all we can do is hope, hope that they are able to play a role model way. And and I and I would use the example of Marcus Rashford as well. I mean, of what Marcus Rashford is doing, okay, playing for Man United but actually none of us are thinking of him really as a footballer, but his platform and his position of influence is having such an influence that it's actually changing the mind of the prime minister. And that's the sort of person that we, we certainly want our kids looking up to, you know, and I, 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 so I, I get your point there, but I think it's, it's hard for us as parents sometimes to choose that because the kids are so heavily influenced. Yeah, no, no. And the, the point you make about Marcus Rashford is, Totally true. I mean, he is he's having such a positive influence on something that is really hugely important. And, you, and you, you, you know, there's no amount of admiration you could have for Marcus Rashford that would adequately, um, um, you know, sum up how, how people, how we all feel about what he's done. It is it has been amazing. And I see that um, the rugby player in the UK now, Mara Watoje, is trying to start a campaign to get computers for kids who are in situations where they wouldn't have access to computers. Because with all this home learning now, what do you do if you're a single mom and you've got four kids and you've got maybe one laptop in the house and you've got three kids doing lessons and they all need the laptop at the same time? So you know, that is something that's well worth campaigning for. And Maro Toje is, um, is to be hugely commended for doing it. And, and of course, when people behave like that, they really, you know, exercise a huge uh, and positive influence on the lives of young people. But once you buy into that, Dan, you buy into all the negative stuff. Yes. You know, the footballer you love who, who kind of casually breaks the lockdown guidelines and goes out partying or whatever you know what do you what do you say to your kid then who says you know dad I can't believe he did this because you know I I I look up to him so much and now he's he's been involved in a fight outside a nightclub or he's been involved in in a crash while driving under the influence and and if you're dad you want to say to them you know this guy's a human being yeah and he he's not like he is brilliant at what he does but that doesn't mean that everything else in his life is is in, in good order. Yeah. And and you you can't look to this person and think that they're going to show you the right example all the time because they're not. Yeah, and but... they're the kind of conversations I don't ever remember. I mean, we, we, we have lots of kids. I don't ever remember feeling that the kids looked up to sportsmen in that way. I think they enjoyed sport and they enjoyed watching them. But I think they always had enough of a sense to realize they were... They yeah. were just human beings who, who who could be 
heroic in their behavior and who could be disappointing in their behavior. Yes. And, and, I, and I just think I feel for the sportsmen being put in this position where they're expected to be role models. It's not like they get training. No. It's not like somebody takes them, pulls them to one side and said, no, you're going to be considered a role model. So you're going to have to prepare for this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's making that separation, isn't it? And I think you've made that point very well over the last hour of the, the separating the human being from the athlete. You yes. know, and, 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 and I think what the, what the athletic ability, skill, talent, success does is it gives a platform that, that can influence more people. But we need to be teaching our children that we're, we're looking for role models of human, for their human being qualities and their values and all of these things. And I guess that also links into what we talked about around the cheating as well or around, you know, being hidden by the fame, you know, and, you know, to, to jump into that on a, on a larger scale within sport and not just sport, probably business as well. When the stakes are that high, you know, the, the, the financial gains are so high, do, we, do you think we're always going to risk or, or be in a place where people are going to try and cheat or push the boundaries to get there? Oh, guaranteed. Guaranteed. My uncle-in-law, my wife's uncle once said, you know, he used to say, very few people get to be seriously wealthy by always doing the right thing. And I do think, like, in the way that we're drawn to sportsmen because of how well they play sport, a lot of people are drawn to rich people because yeah. they've got so much money. Yeah. And, I, and to me, that's a ludicrous reason for admiring somebody. Yeah. You admire him because he's made, he's made millions in business. He's just good at his job, you know? Yeah, yeah. There may be, um, as I say, a delivery man, a postman, uh, somebody in a job that would be considered, inverted commas, ordinary, doing a brilliant job. All the fantastic people working in hospitals now. I mean... Why would you give any special kind of accolade to somebody who's just earned a lot of money? Yeah. Uh, I've never been impressed by wealth, yeah. but because it's you want to get a sense of what that person is like. And, and it is true that often the people who achieve the most are the people, not always, of course, not always. But there is um, a tendency for them to cut corners. To find loopholes, yeah, you know those those loopholes are found, and I guess, you know, if it's cricket ball tampering that yes. we've seen, you know, if it if it is doping, if it's finding some loophole in a financial system that somebody does, so so I guess what's what's the solution to that? You know, it's one thing going after one person, but how how what's the solution to that in the whole sports world, or is it something that we just need to accept? I think we've got to accept it, but, but accepting the sense that it's inevitable, it's going to happen, but call it out when it happens. I mean, I was thrilled. Uh, thrilled is too strong a word. I was pleased to see when the Australia cricket team got into a contentious kind of situation with India in the, the test series that's just ended now um, in Australia. And people were unimpressed by the Australia captain calling one of the Indian um, batsmen a dickhead. And I was certainly unimpressed by it. Yep. And then we saw C Steve Smith, who had been captain when Australia got into their ball tampering um, scandal, you know, kind of trying to mess up the markings on the on, yeah, on the that, yeah. And, and he totally denies it, as if yeah. it didn't happen. He totally denies it. 
And, and then you think, you know what, Steve? I don't take your contrition to what you did yeah. now as being worth anything. Yeah. And it's not that you just behave in a kind of schoolboy, petulant way by rubbing out those markings, but it's your denial that it happened when we've looked at it and we've seen it on a video clip. And you're yeah, trying yeah. to Anyway, India won that test series. I saw that. I have never cheered for India. <laughs> Silent cheers. I saw that this morning and I thought, yes, <laughs> yes. There, there is a cricket god somewhere <laughs> out there who's looking after the rest of us. Good yeah. riddance to Australia. Uh, no, absolutely. And, that, and, and not to turn this into a cricket podcast, but they were also bowled out, I believe, for 36 in the first innings of the first test. Yes. So what, res- what resilience and persistence they've shown as well. That's that. right. And you can just imagine, I, I hope, I don't know the extent, but I hope, I hope a huge amount of people in India, because it's obviously got a huge cricket-loving population. I really hope they tuned into that, you know, during this kind of uh, pandemic times. I mean, if you were if you were if you were living in one of one of the cities in India and you were watching that cricket, it must have been some experience to see your team come from where they were to beat these Australians, you know, on their home patch. They were all watching it. Are they? I mean, that it's life, isn't it? It's life in India. Cricket totally, is totally, 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 and uh, yeah, and it's not, it's not a, it's not a middle class game or a way. It's a game for everybody, and yeah. uh, I just love the idea of of ordinary people in India getting involved in that and and seeing the result that, and getting the result they got. Terrific. Absolutely. And just uh, David, in terms of whilst I've got you, we've talked about. I don't want this to be like sports negative everyone cheats uh don't don't let your kids watch sport because the terrible role models what about the great sports personalities and i'm sure you know specifically i'd love to start and i'm taking a bit of a risk here because i don't know if you know him or have come across him but sir andy murray have you ever have you ever come across yes, i have yeah i actually um i'm biased i have to say in relation to andy murray um because I'm a huge admirer, always was, because to me, Andy Murray was one of those um, athletes who always managed um, to just seem to, to get the best out of himself. Whatever he's capable of, you know, whatever his potential was, he went right to the limit of that from what I could see watching him play. And uh, I interviewed him once and found him a really interesting character. I read many interviews he's done. He's always interesting. He's been brave about stuff within the game that he didn't think was right. And I think he was generally on the side of right. You know, one of those sportsmen who you could, in my eyes, you could legitimately hold up as a role model. You could, you know, you could say to your kid, if your kid said to you, you know, dad, I really love that guy, Andy Murray. You'd say, well, there are are good reasons why you should. And it's not just because of the way he plays tennis. I think the way he plays life has been impressive. And, uh, you know, no, I'm a, always, always was a big Andy Murray fan. I, in a way that, I mean, I can admire the fact that, that Djokovic is a brilliant tennis player, you know, maybe more talent than Andy Murray. Roger Federer, the same. Um, um, Nadal, maybe also, certainly on clay courts. But um, I don't admire them in the way that I admire Murray. Because yeah. I feel with Murray, you're talking about a, a substantial character yeah. who, who's never just thought about his own interests. He, he's got the interests of, you know, he's just more 
balanced human being. You know what? I always, I mean, I know her, I, you can't say anything bad about about Roger Federer because it's like it's like saying something bad about your mum's apple pie. You know, <laughs> but when Roger talks in the third person or something like that, I always feel that that he's not quite. His self-awareness wouldn't be, uh, let me put this as politely as I can. I don't think he is Andy Murray's level of self-awareness. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> well, actually, do you know what? Earlier on, and, and I don't know if you picked it up, but I asked a question about sportsmen and I very quickly corrected myself to say, and women. Yes. That is Andy Murray inspired. You yes. know, that that's that's the legacy for me that Andy Murray will have. And, you know, we've talked a lot about that today about, you know, connecting with the human being and, and actually that's the role model bit. That's the bit that we want to influence people. And, and without question, me saying sportsmen there is subtle sexism. Yes. You know, and, yeah. And, 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 and I've been guilty of that. And, and, you know, what about, we'll jump sports here now, Dan, what about Justin Rose? Yep. sponsoring that tournament for women on the European yes. tour. I mean, because ultimately, to me, um, it's a big deal when people put their money where their mouths are. Yeah. You know, and it's not like, of course, Justin Rose has done well in, in his career financially, but so have plenty of other people, you know, in business and in sport who haven't sponsored a, a ladies' tour event, a women's yep. tour event, so uh, I got huge admiration for what Justin Rose did in that. And it's like, there are times when, uh, when a person is generous in that way. I don't know how you feel about this, but my, my feeling is, you know, I would forgive him anything. It's now, it's now the case that Justin Rose can take as long over his putts as he likes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be on his side. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? But you kind of know as well. I think it, it, when we talk about sports people, you get a feel for them. And and, and Justin Rose, he, always in my gut, I felt felt he's a good he's a good guy. You know, he's you know Djokovic. I've always felt there's something that's there that I don't I don't quite like. I don't quite trust. The same with Lance Armstrong. In reality, you know that yes. you you, yes. you get you do get a feel for people. And I think I think a, a Justin Rose certainly is a one that. I would be shocked, horrified if something bad came out about him because of the feeling yeah. they get about it. Yeah, uh, I would tend to have a different, yeah, different view to you. I would have said, you know, uh, yeah, Justin seems a lovely guy, he, and and then I would, you, you you would have thought this churlish, and and it would have been a bit of a caveat. I would have said, yeah, like he's he's naturally good at PR, yeah. um, but then he comes along and says, I'm going to sponsor a, a women's yeah, yeah. sport event. That, that, that creates good PR, of course it does, but at considerable cost to himself. And, and ultimately, that to me matters a great deal. It really shows that the guy is not just for himself, that yeah. he's prepared to be generous and he's prepared to be generous, not just with his time, but with his actual yeah. money. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, fair juice to him. That's something that will, that will be long remembered. Yeah. And a polarizing character, sports another sportsman that we're talking about but someone who you've i would imagine got to know quite well as as the ghost writer of his autobiography kevin peterson kp uh <laughs> yes um the thing that i say to people and they say what was it like writing kevin's um 
autobiography or helping him to write it. And I said, well, where we started on this was the first meeting. Kevin said, look, I don't want this to be a, like a, a book where I, where I point scoring against my former teammates or where I'm slagging them off. And I say, Kevin, I think that's a wise move. You, know, you don't want it to be like backbiting like that. And then for about the next 44 hours of interviews, <laughs> he couldn't stop himself. Um, but I found him fantastic to work with. Really good fun. We've remained, you know, good friends. We chat. Yeah. And Kevin is Kevin. He's, he's a yeah. unique character. And what made him a great batsman may, makes him... Um, a really difficult opponent off the pitch as well. See, Kevin could take on all those guys, you know, and he really did hammer some of his teammates, hammer them. But he would do that in a way that would, that, like I, I thought there'd be a huge backlash from his teammates. Yeah. You know, that they would say, what he said was totally unfair, blah, blah, blah. He's this, he's that. But they didn't. Because you can't get involved with, with KP on that level. Yeah. Because he is fearless. Yeah, yeah. He, he, they would come back and say things about him, and then he would say things that were ten times stronger about. It's them. like Dan Evans in tennis. Dan Evans, yeah. the British tennis player. You don't want to go. You don't want to go fight on fight on words with with Dan Evans. It's exactly yes. the same. You can't. He's completely fearless. Yes, and he, and he doesn't mind. He's like somebody who has nothing to lose. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and but that's what made KP the great batsman he was because yeah, when yeah. he went out there, he didn't matter who was who was bowling against him. Yeah, he believed he was going to drive him out of the ground. You know, he just he just yeah. didn't see the fear. And uh, but it was fun, and uh, and we and 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 we remained good friends. Well, not we, we remained friends. I I call him up occasionally, and we we'd have a chat. And uh, he's getting on fine. You know, he's yeah. Uh, um, KP, his KP, you know, when they, when they, when they made KP, they, they threw away the mold, as they say. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. David, I have one more question before we have quick fire round. It's, it's actually gutting for me because I'm loving the chat, you know, and I, I could talk to you all day. You've, you've been absolutely brilliant um, and brilliant with your time. I, I can't not ask about this because I know that currently, you are looking into one of the all-time greats in US sport, you know, and looking into, you know, longevity in sports. And I believe he's maybe 42 years old now. Um, just just won a playoff game against actually my American football team, New Orleans Saints at the weekend. You yeah. know, he's now moved into another conference, conference final and a different team. What can you share with us about Tom Brady? Well, the first thing I really should say, Dan, is I, I know nothing about American football. I haven't been an avid watcher. I, I recently got interested in Tom Brady, and I, I, I've just read Jeff Benedict's book, The Dynasty, about the years of the Patriots' kind of domination of our supremacy in the NFL. And what comes across about Tom Brady is very smart, like unbelievable self-belief, and maybe most of all, um, and then like dedication, you know, looking after himself. I mean, it's absolutely clear from the dynasty, the book, that there wasn't one player with the Patriots who worked 
half as hard as Tom Brady. I mean, what Tom Brady would do, if they, if they were on the road and they, they flew back to Boston and they get back at one o'clock in the morning after some night game somewhere and every player goes home, Tom Brady goes into, goes, goes, goes round to the stadium where the team have their training headquarters and starts watching the video of the game that night. And he knows he's not going to be able to sleep and he decides to begin the, the debrief there and then. And, um, and the other thing that struck me about him, and this will tell people why he survived so long, his DNA was incredible. He, you know, he had one very serious knee injury in his career. Otherwise, he's had no injury, which is like ridiculous. He's 43 yeah. years of age now. Okay. A few years ago, the Patriots were playing, I think, conference final one game before the game before Super Bowl and on the four days before he is a freak accident with a bib and he tears open the area between his thumb and his forefinger his yeah his forefinger and it's a huge gash and when the doc looks in the doc who's an expert you know on this like a surgeon hand surgeon he can see all the ligaments like you can literally see them because the gash is so big. The gash is going to going to need 25 stitches. You know, 25 stitches between your thumb and your forefinger on your throwing hand. But what the doc said that he couldn't understand, which was completely ridiculous given the severity of the gash, was that none of the ligaments were damaged. And Brady said, well, that's how it's always been. You know, I never get soft tissue injury. Because whatever way his muscles are made, and he obviously does all the stretching, and he, he doesn't call it stretching, he calls it pliability. Yeah. He, say, he says that stretching leads to injury, which you and I would have thought was totally counterintuitive. Yeah. He says if you stretch, you make them taut, and you make them more liable to strain. But if you can get your muscles to be pliable, which is long and soft, yeah. as opposed to long and tight, yes. you're going to survive. So I found that absolutely remarkable that he could get this four days before conference final. He could get stitched up, 25 stitches. He goes out and, of course, has a brilliant game and the Patriots win again. Yeah. And uh, what an example, though. We can pretty much, you know, and we live in an era now where we, you worry about all people involved in collision sports, how they're going to be with with concussions and head and early onset dementia and all of that, I'd say there's a seriously good chance that Tom Brady is going to remain very healthy for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, when you see him now, does he look like a 43-year-old? It's incredible. <laughs> it's incredible. Incredible. He is really incredible. Really. And like, you know, it's but he would say, is there any reason why my brain should should stop? you know, facilitating how I want to play. And he would say, no reason. He would say, I still have the same strength in my arm. I can still throw the ball as far. Why shouldn't I be able to throw it as accurately? And you do notice, you know, when you watch him now, he doesn't get hit very often. No. And it's good. It's good the way the NFL, they do try to protect the NFL, the, the quarterback. But, you know, better say than rugby protects the fly half. We still allow late hits on fly halves in rugby which I think is a bit of a travesty. Yeah. You know, people say, oh, he was committed to the tackle. Why is a guy always committed to the tackle on the fly half? Yeah. You know, and that they allow a slightly late one because he was committed. 
and but it's always the fly half. So I think uh, rugby could learn from NFL in relation to protecting the playmaker. Quick fire round, David. Yes. Are you ready? I I, I may not be as quick as, as your <laughs> listeners would like, but I'll try. <laughs> Who's the next Great Britain cycling hope? Oh, yeah, that's an easy one. Tom Pitcock. He's a, a young guy who won the what they call the baby Giro d'Italia last year. It's the under-23 Tour of Italy. He won two stages and won the overall but won it in a way that suggests extraordinary ability. He actually, he joins Team Ineos on the first day of February, but, but he could be, uh, he could certainly be the most talented Tour de France rider to have ever come out of Britain, uh, because I don't consider Chris Froome to have come out of Britain. He came out of Kenya via South Africa. Okay. Cycling or tennis? I tend to think of the better question for me would be, um, Tour de France or Wimbledon. And I've been at Wimbledon a number of times and I've absolutely loved it. But I've loved the Tour de France even more. Very good. Uh, you should do my job. <laughs> 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 is, is elite sport clean? I've got to give a qualified answer. It's cleaner than people think. And um, the routine answer is to say it's dirtier than people think. I think people think it's very dirty. Yep. But I don't think it is as dirty as people think. And do you think we will ever have it clean? Not 100%, but we can always have it cleaner. And it is cleaner now. I mean, the Tour de France is a good example. In my view, it's a, it's a, it's a far cleaner race now than it was in the Armstrong years because the, the anti-doping protocols are much stronger and there's proper out-of-competition testing. Um, but will it ever be 100% clean? No chance. Doctors... Or physical trainers? Uh, physical trainers. Down through the years, I have found that when doctors get involved, people who don't know expect them to bring a higher level of morality. And so far, that has not been the case in sport. Online or print? I'm a dinosaur. Print. Your favourite tennis grand slam? Um, it was actually 1984. Ivan Lendl going two sets up against John McEnroe in the French Open. And, um, sorry, the other way around. John McEnroe going two sets up, playing a clay court game that involved going to the net all the time. Yep. So McEn McEnroe completely dominates Lendl in the first two sets by going to the net all the time. And you're thinking, this is so brilliant. This is like turning every belief we have on its head but can it last and sadly it didn't and Lendl came back to win in five sets but it was a, an extraordinary attempt by McEnroe and I felt hugely sorry that he, he, he wasn't able to bring it off but okay. Lendl was a great champion as well and, and that's the one I most remember. Yeah. And, and a, a, a more recent one than that, not quite as high profile, but in Britain was the Tim Henman run to the semi-final at the French Open where he did a similar thing, you know, out, out of nowhere, playing short drop shots, short slices, coming to the net. And I think in, in the game of tennis, it's so nice when you see those contrasting styles on the, yes, on, the on the different surfaces. What would be one rule change that you would have across sport as a whole? Oh, one rule change. Um, 
that all forms of sledging would be regarded as a foul against the game and that would be penalized. Uh, I hate sledging. I, 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 I see, I watched some NFL at the weekend and the commentators were having a great laugh about all the appalling things that, that they showed a match, somebody getting sent off because he punched the other guy. And the commentators are saying, well, that's because the guy who was punched had said the most appalling things yep. to the guy who punched him. Well, my sympathy would be entirely with the guy who punched. And, yes. and I, I would love to see the guy because remember, he, for all we know, he may have been saying things against that guy's mother or sister or something appallingly sexist or appallingly racist. And you can get away with that because nobody hears it. And, and when I hear the Australians talking about how wonderful sledging is, I, 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 I kind of I despair a bit because I, I can't believe that every Australian thinks it's a, it's a great idea. You know, that's the thing I would love to see. What about a little bit of respect for the guy you're playing with? What about saying well done when he does something well and saying tough look when it doesn't go his way and it does go your way? Let me tell you one last thing on this that reflects how I feel. Uh, at the moment in Ireland, there's a Gaelic football team, Dublin, that have won six All-Ireland titles in a row. Their most experienced player is their goalkeeper, Stephen Cluxton, who I think has won maybe eight All-Ireland titles at this point. And he said he no longer celebrates on the pitch when the opposition are there at the end of an All-Ireland final because he just thinks it's disrespectful and, and not something he wants to do anymore. So he leaves the pitch as soon as the game is over and you know sympathises with the opposition who've just lost an All-Ireland final and then does his celebrating inside the changing room where he's not, where he's not doing it in the face of the opposition. Now, you can say that, oh, that's what you could do if you'd won eight of them. But when you win the first, it's different. But the principle is admirable. It's been a lovely, consistent message all the way through this chat, David. And I think it's a, it's a lovely last answer. Our final, final, final question is who should our next guest be on the podcast? Oh, you've got to get Andy Murray. If you got some strings. Yes, well, well, uh, I would advise him to go on. But I mean, it's, uh, you know, if you've got an interest in tennis, well, Andy Murray is one guy that you want to, that you would, you would like to engage in conversation. Thank you, David. And and can I say a, a massive thank you, not only for, for what you've done over the years in terms of entertaining us, educating us through, through your writing, but for your, for your consistent pursuit of the truth and and I think for me just sitting here talking to you today that's something that it comes through so loud and clear in everything that you are saying you know I've learned loads from you today and and it's been brilliant I know the listeners will as well so thank you so much David for coming on the show yeah you're welcome Dan it's been a pleasure genuinely a massive thank you to David Walsh for coming on to the podcast uh, that was that was such a treat to bring someone in from outside of tennis, but still very much involved in sport. And yeah, what what a conversation! I feel Vic as if we could almost have a podcast after the podcast talking about his podcast. 
Yeah, I'd like to have him around for dinner. What an incredible story he's got. He's a great storyteller. He's got a strong moral code. He's clear in his beliefs of what's right and what's wrong. And I found the whole thing fascinating. I could listen to him for another hour. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the moral code, and I think that's absolutely something that I take out of the out of the whole show and the whole conversation. And there's something that that really rings true with me, and that's don't be governed by the need to be popular. And and I think that that comment, that statement is something a lot of us do in life. And I love the story. I love the Gaelic football story with the head teacher, Brendan Burns, you know, how he really stuck to his values and he wanted to get the truth out, you know, even in those early stages. If that meant that he's not going to be popular, then so be it, because he he is going to be a journalist. He isn't going to be involved. And again, my other comment that I would take with that when people don't want a story to appear in the paper, that is journalism. The rest is ad- advertising. And I, I just thought they were such lovely little, uh, almost like little sound bites that he, that he gave that said so much about him, even though he seemed to underplay that because I think that was such a normal value that he lives. Yeah, he's very wise, isn't he? So much experience in what's been such an incredible career. What, what did you think about... Um, he doesn't believe that sports men and women should be role models for children. I thought it was I thought it was a nice message in in one way. You know, I think what he was really saying, I guess, was you know that we put people on a pedestal based on their sporting achievement rather than judging people on the type of person they are. And I would say I absolutely agree with that bit. However. I'm not sure that I agree with this sports stars aren't role models. And and I guess if I almost break that down a little bit, if we employ somebody here at Soto Tennis Academy and we are paying their wages, then there is a certain code and behaviour that is expected. And, and we expect them to, to, to live, to act, in, in a certain way that represents the brand that is Soto Tennis. And if we take a Lance Armstrong, or we take somebody, a Kevin Peterson, who we talked about in cricket, where does Kevin Peterson's wage come from? Well, it comes from, ultimately, the fans buying tickets. It comes from the club and country that are paying his wage. So he is representing that club, that country, and the sport that is cricket, so I, I, I don't think we can say that they're not role models because cricket wants their players to be role models to, to youngsters, to get them more involved in the sport, to, to sell more, more cricket bats and cricket shirts and, you know, all of this side of things. So I'm sorry, David, but I actually disagreed with that part of, of the chat. Yeah, I think we could have a whole episode um, just on that topic alone. I think it definitely brings up a, a lot of different views from different people. Um, and yeah, I, d- I would definitely recommend checking out the programme, which is the movie following um, the story of David and Lance. A great watch, I thought. So yeah, we'll put the link to in the episode notes for definitely. you for that. Um, again, looking back at episode 95 last week with Mark Petchy. Wow, we've had um, a huge response to that episode. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never seen such a response for any of our podcasts on social media. And a big thank you to you all, actually, who, who have got involved in that. There's been some nice debates. You know, there's some, been some topics that people have got involved. This is, this is 
not all about people agreeing with everything that's said on these podcasts. You know, this is set out to be quite thought-provoking and... I certainly think the way Mark spoke, he spoke with such layers, he talked about such multiple consequences, and and because of that, we've had all sorts of messages, and that has also led to us, this possibly being the most downloaded episode yet, certainly in the first four or five days, it's on track to knock Dan Evans off the oh. off the top, um, but, <laughs> he won't be happy. but we'll certainly be going into second place very soon, so if you haven't listened to that one, it's, it's highly recommended, and again, I can't thank Mark enough for coming on, I thought he spoke incredibly well, humbly, honestly, uh, it, it was a, a, another classic really. And we've had a message about the episode with Dasha Kazakina as well, which was um, episode 93. Um, message from John T. Solomons. He said, a really good one because the guest is so open, engaging and down to earth. It makes me suddenly become a fan and me and me. Um, and I wish more players did these. Um, Dan does a great job of being humble and facilitating the guest opening up, especially when Kazakina talks about football. <laughs> Funny that. And I finally learning to understand Geordie. Well done, Dan, on the best podcast in tennis yeah no a lo- lovely message it's lovely to it's lovely to receive these messages you know when the, the, we know the work that's going in behind them and and I have to agree with John T I think players opening themselves up and giving that insight and Dasha was so lovely you know the way she that was. she spoke uh, it does it gets people engaged with them and ultimately you want to follow someone who you feel you know a little bit more um, so a little bit of a call out to more players to get yourselves on the podcast <laughs> we'll give you the platform uh, to, to grow your fan base um, yeah one of, one of my favorites actually that's come through this week and you know, on, on social media, sometimes you don't find all the messages if you're not following them. And it was from Manny Down Tennis, who is the coach that Ian Bates spoke about in his episode. And Ian had spoken about, you know, how how much he, he has to give to his coach that brought him up. And the fact that he's then gone and listened to that podcast, he's found it. And his message was just really quite nice. He just said, imagine my surprise when I was working through this podcast series. And he put the picture of that uh, and, and the quote associated with it. So, so that really was lovely. And if you don't mind, I've got one more I want to mention because I promised I would mention them. And that is that is Graves Tennis Centre, who they've been really supportive all the way through. You know, I know they've been listening, listening to all of the podcasts and what they have been doing. And they said all of the players, parents and coaches, you know, they're currently doing a movement challenge from Sheffield to the Australian Open. <laughs> and these podcasts are our go to listen for all the running, cycling and walking that's going on. Uh, that's for tennis parents, players and coaches of all different backgrounds who find it highly relatable and thought-provoking. And uh, what a lovely message and a big good luck to everyone at Graves Tennis Academy. Keep up the great work and thank you for listening. It really does make it all worthwhile. And that is it for this episode. We do have lots more fantastic guests coming up. I'm not going to tell you who, but there is an Australian Open preview for you to look out for in the next few days. But until then, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables. Control the Controllables.